Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. In this episode, I talk to Fraser Grace about making plays, writing poetry and the website he built in lockdown called The Word Cage, where he shares his own poems and those of his special guests. It's a difficult time for anyone in the performing arts, as we all know, but I found it inspiring to hear how the spirit of creation survives somehow whatever life throws at it, and also how thinking about performance can inform our writing, whatever kind of writing that is. Fraser has some really good tips for keeping your writing going, I think. And I love his understanding of how writing is a part of who we are and we need to express that and find the time to do it. We recorded this episode in November 2020. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Fraser, hello and welcome to Pre-Published. Hello, Sophia. I'm really excited about this and slightly nervous because <laughs> I haven't talked to a published poet on um, and playwright uh, on the podcast before. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And I'm really interested in, in discussing um, writing for performance in, in lockdown and just the, the effect that lockdown has, has had right. on anyone who, who performs what they do. Mm. Um, but I'd like to start, first of all, with asking you um, a question I'm asking everyone this season, which is, where are you at the moment as you're talking to me? Uh, geographically. Or <laughs> Both, geogra- actually, geographically and physically. <laughs> like, are you in your shed? <laughs> actually, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in the uh, back bedroom, which is an office. Uh, yep. And... Uh, I'm in Cambridge. Uh, well, just outside Cambridge. Sounds lovely. Um, <laughs> sitting here in South London, I think, yeah, I, I could do with some... I was going to say some rolling fields. Of course, you don't have those in Cambridge. Well, we do have rolling fields, actually. At the, oh, um, do you? The top of the garden. It, um, we're, we're very lucky in that uh, it rolls away to a very, very, very shallow uh, valley. Um so uh, yeah, it is. It is open space. It's uh, it's rather lovely. That sounds great. I, I gather that um, that like me, you have a writing shed because you mention it uh, in the word cage. Um, and I'm wondering whether, like me, you're not actually in a writing shed at the moment because it has rubbish Wi-Fi. <laughs> yes, exactly that. I mean, it it, <laughs> it was very deliberately built. Well, I say deliberately built off grid. It um, it is at the top of the garden and therefore off grid. Um, I have a little uh, stove in there, wood burning stove that I can warm up, and oh, I've yeah. got, I can make a cup of tea and everything else. But um, signal wise, it's not great. I can bounce stuff on off the phone occasionally and, and pick up emails, but um, but it's not very reliable uh, for anything more than that. So. Yeah, um, mine. Mine was. I started off deliberately like that with with mine because I thought, well, you know, the muse will come to me better if I'm not constantly distracted by social media and everything. <laughs> so it's very pure. But when I want to actually achieve anything, yes. it's quite. Well, you find actually being off grid is a bigger distraction because you're constantly <laughs> thinking, "What am I missing? What's what's going on?" And also, of course, we all spend our life on uh, Zoom and other platforms at the moment. So uh, if you haven't got a good signal then uh, then you're a little bit trapped inside I, I try and spend a bit of time each day up there um so I sort of select all the work that I actually don't need to be online and uh, and I go up there and it makes me feel better 
same here. Yeah, I love it. But right now I'm I'm in the bedroom of my son who's at uni up at the top of the house, which is, <laughs> yes. which is where I go when I have to. Little do they know, as soon as they're out of the house, <laughs> we recolonize. Yeah. Yes, we've done Sorry, the same. Actually. We've done the same. My my wife Sue is in the uh, in the front bedroom, which is uh, our youngest son's bedroom, or was, but he's away too. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, first question for you is: is how did you become a playwright and a poet? Because I am really curious about how anyone can make the leap from doodling in notebooks, which is what I've done with both of those to just turning it into something really serious that you're going to share with other people well for me it, it, it really happened um I mean I'd always written stuff you know that was the thing I could do at school really um so I always wrote stories and I read a lot uh and then when I went to university I fell among actors is the only way I can say it and I <laughs> I started writing for them uh well us uh because because yeah. I acted as well and uh and it was just the most natural thing really to um to start writing for the stage and I found it found that very exciting um so how did you understand the structure of playwriting um, well, I suppose the yeah, I mean acts and scenes, but also yeah, yeah. I mean the practicalities of how, how many actors and and cost and props and all yeah. of that. Well, I, I think first of all, I mean on on all playwriting courses they say don't worry about that, you know, write your vision. Right. But of course, in reality, <laughs> like everything else, uh, there are practicalities to consider. But I I I uh, at first we we just perform very short plays and sketches and things around the place uh and then and then actually off the back of the student company that we had we we set up myself and a couple of friends one of whom is now my wife uh we set up a, a small touring company so so that had its own sort of limitations you know there were only four of us in the company uh um and it was the kind of company where you did everything. You acted, you drove the van, you put the set up, you did the show, yes. you took the you took the lights down, you packed it in the van and drove home. Uh, so that was a really good kind of practical uh, learning experience. But we we got into doing some rather we called them um, we called them assembly uh, productions, and they were. They were sort of they'd be in a sort of non theatre space, you know, often a school hall or a gym, or dreadful acoustics gyms. But anyway, uh, school or a community centre, and uh, the audience would sort of move around the place. There'd be sort of two or three performing uh, platforms or something, and we'd move the audience around. Um, and and that was a great experience for for learning how to uh, engage with an audience and keep their attention, but absolutely rubbish in terms of how do you get people on and off stage? Because of course, you could just spring up uh, in another place. <laughs> so then when I then when I wanted to to I, I decided that I was tired of being trying to write the play the next play in the back of the van on the way to some performance. Uh, and I decided I wanted to write. So then I did, I went back 
to uh, university and did a master's course at uh, Birmingham University. A lot of it just to to really get my head around um, writing in a kind of more disciplined way for, for a stage. So learning how to get people on and off stage and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. and how scenes and acts worked. Um, yeah, so that was that was great. And I was like a kid in a sweet shop, you know, for I had suddenly had license to to do all the reading that I wanted to do. I could read anything and it was fully justified because I was studying this stuff. Um, and uh, and really I've I've been writing plays since then, but what I what I found I really missed as I moved deeper and deeper into writing was I I miss the immediacy of being in front of an audience myself and so in fact that's really when I began to write poetry and it was very much poetry for performance and it was very much poetry for performance so I could perform it um and I I sort of toured as a as a performance poet for a bit um which was a lot of standing up in in university bars or uh, bars in general, really, and trying to win an audience. Uh, so it was quite kind of um, it was quite uh, well. You were wrestling for attention, you know. It wasn't at all what you yeah. think of as a as a poetry reading. It was it was wrestle the attention of your audience and uh, and try and win. So were, were they poetry slams that you were doing? Yeah, they were like that. Things? It was much more like sort of stand up comedy, really. You know, so it was more the kind of poetry slam. But you know, occasionally it would just be me, or sometimes it would be two or three performers, or me and a musician. You know, that was often the way it was. You know, you get a gig in a pub and. And uh, he or she does their songs and then I do a few poems. It was that sort of thing. So, again, I mean, that was great. That was great experience. And I and I sort of bumped into poetry at school. I went to a god-awful comprehensive in the arse end of Derbyshire. And, uh, but they, they, um, they, did, they did sort of get us to – they got us to read a lot of stuff like the loneliness of the long distance runner and stuff like that they maybe thought wow, okay. they maybe thought would appeal to um you know uh working class oics like us but uh, <laughs> but when i went to the fe college uh uh gerard manley hopkins was was on the syllabus and that which was a great oh. influence uh, a bit of a shock but i mean yeah. i was intrigued you know i was really intrigued because it it sounded great in your ear, even if you didn't understand it. Um, and uh, yeah, he, I think that was the first poet that I really, really fell in love oh, with. Oh, really? Uh, right, yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, I mean, it's strange because I mean, I, I don't think he ever wrote expecting his stuff to be uh, published, but but it's clearly written for the ear. Uh, I would say, yes, uh, that, that's how I think of it. And and the other thing they did at the FE College was they did um, they did uh, sort of gigs, you know, bands and things would come. And and once it was the the Mersey poets, so Roger McGough and Brian Patton and Adrian Henry, and and it was it was kind of poetry until they were so drunk they fell off the stool, kind of stuff. And it, <laughs> and it was That's great, excellent. you know. I suddenly thought, <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, this is it. So, so when, uh, as I say, I came out of the theatre company and I, I felt the yen for, um, for an audience. Uh, you know, I had something, some kind of reference points, and uh, and began to write stuff to hurl at an audience, and uh, and it was very sort of rhythmic and very in your face. Um, and then and then I've returned to poetry more recently. Um, uh, I suppose over the past couple of years, but but particularly uh, with lockdown when. Um, when the life of the playwright has become more more a conceptual activity uh, than an actual one. Indeed, it has, hasn't it? Um, yes. So I'd, I'd love to, well, I'd, love is a long one. I'd like to come to that, that a bit later, but I, right, yeah. I did want to talk to you about the word cage because... Mm. Um, here, yes, I mean, as, as I was saying, you, you work in a world of performance that is, is more challenged than, than almost any other world at the moment. And, and I love the fact that your response to it was to make something mm. um, and, and to make the word cage, to make a website, to share poetry in a very thoughtful way, um, making the most of technology so that we can actually hear yeah. you and and guest poets read their work which i think makes such an enormous difference yeah um so so how and why did you decide to do it uh, well i i think it was very much that thing of just i had been writing quite a bit of poetry and uh, and i and i just thought well i you know i've got to get this out there and the opportunity as i thought might arise to sort of start doing cafe and pub readings and things so obviously that right. possibility completely disappeared so uh so i began to think well how can i do it and i i'd never built um a website before but then i had also never built a writing hut before which i did a, a few years ago you know so it was there was a metaphor there you know <laughs> i wrote a hut to write in and then i wrote a web a website i built a website to um to hold the poetry and and uh, again I suppose that that um, inclination towards uh, performance to to hear uh, the poetry um, immediately made me think of you know can I not just load these up as as written text but can we also do them as audio files and actually it's got very very much easier uh, to do that sort of stuff in recent years so yeah. um so that's how it came about really i'm so interested in that the whole theme of what you've been describing to me is about performance and speaking and doing it and and i had all have always sort of poetry's generally been presented to me as words on a page mm. and perhaps words in a magazine and it's interesting because you know it's talking about Gerard Manley Hopkins my my initial exposure to poetry was my mother speaking it to me uh. when I was a baby and and I, that's why I adore words so much and and she absolutely adored rhythm I mean I remember she, she would do one one misty moisty morning when cloudy was the weather <laughs> there I met an old man steel eye span leather. is we, we would... how I came across that one. <laughs> oh, really <laughs> that but we that that kind of um that idea of 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 rhythm um and an imagery always attracted me and yet i yeah I, I would if somebody said poetry i would think of words on a page and if i were to write it and try and share it i would be thinking of how can i share it via 
words on a page, a magazine right. yes. or, or an anthology. Yes. And and that would scare me witless and I wouldn't do it, obviously. Mm. And yet for you, it seems so instinctive to to perform it, to to, to speak it to other people. And yes. it feels well, much more natural, actually. Well, yes, whether they want it or not is, I think... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that. I'm, I'm with that program. I think that came from the from the working <laughs> bars, you know, whether you like it or not. Here it is. Um, yeah, I, I and I, that idea of responding to the lockdown of you know getting something out there, you know, uh, pushing back against that kind of closing down. Um, it's it's very easy to sort of go in your into your shell and um, mm. and you know I had. I had plays uh, or play in production anyway, a, a labour of love uh, that I've been working on for a long time and, and was on the sort of brink of a good run in London and uh, and all that closed down. So it, it, it was a kind of, it was a kind of emotional response, I say, uh, I suppose, to, to push back and say, right, okay, let's find a way of getting stuff so that it is there if, if people can find their way to it it's it feel I mean, a lot of people at the moment are saying um plant bulbs um because come spring you will be so grateful for the green shoots coming through and i'm completely one of them and i've mm. just been planting tulip and daffodil bulbs but there's there's something about um human endeavor too will will endure <laughs> whatever whatever fate throws yes. at us we will we will keep keep going keep making keep doing yeah. something um it, yeah it's lovely to see that there's a particular poem that that I was hoping that you wouldn't mind reading now sure. um which which you wrote for your father I think um creosote ah uh, yes yeah yeah my um yeah uh, this comes from uh a couple of years ago when when dad was uh very ill he passed away at the end of 2018 um so yeah, this is uh, this is creosote. The inspector's inspection plate is off. The heavy brass cover, all thick skin and confidence, is gone. There, where unquestionable right and wrong were seated, where truth was located, clicked in place, fastened down. Something broke, or seized up, or is corroded. Outside, the inspector's toolshed wobbles when I kick it. For God's sake, Dad, where's the creosote? Oh, give me some engine oil, I'll slap on a coat to see you through the wet. Instead, the inspector lifts his hand to illustrate some rambling point, and I see through paper skin his blueprint veins, tangled wire, the strings and pulleys by which life hangs. Your leaving us leaves us exposed, old man, the unprotected end grain of wood. I find that last line, oh, just gets to me every time. Oh, yeah. the unprotected end grain of wood. I'd, 
I mean, I obviously I've never met your father, and but I I sort of feel I got to know so much about him through that, and to an extent your relationship with him in in his later life was it a hard poem to write? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, he, he you know, Dad was um, uh, he he was a very well, he was a an engineer in a small way um and uh and very much a, a kind of diy person he knew about wood and he knew about he could do bricklaying and he could do all sorts of things and and always growing up our houses were essentially building sites at one stage or another it was very very practical but not really temperamentally uh able to sort of um pass that on and uh um, but it's amazing how much you you sort of pick up um, and how many attitudes to, to things that you pick up that you don't realise. I think most of us start off thinking we are um, uh, complete opposites to our parents. Yes. And gradually <laughs> you realise, no, not so much. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, I mean that was a tough, to, you know that 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 poem was from uh, when he was very ill and and when it was increasingly looking as as though this was the the last illness, um, but just that sense that you know whatever his foibles and everything else, he'd, he'd been a very good dad to us and uh, and uh, he he protected us and, and carved out a little world for us, and mm. uh, that's a big loss, you know. Yeah. And so you wrote that through through a very difficult time. Um what's your experience of of writing in lockdown been? Has it has it made it harder to write or have you managed to to find things to say? Uh well it's coming coming gluts. Um I I write a I write a blog as well as uh, as part of the um the word cage site so that's also um that's also a way of um processing i would say because i i think that's often where what poems are for us uh on the writing end of things mm. uh yeah, yeah, that we definitely. are we are processing stuff and 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 so that has been a great help actually during lockdown and and there's also you know as uh, I mean I'm not the first to say this but I mean I, I think it I think it makes you more aware of uh, the seasons the passing of the seasons uh, more aware of the nature around you which perhaps at, at other times you know you're just in too much of a rush to um and and you're out at work and away from home or whatever you haven't got time to notice uh and feed on uh the the natural world around you i mean this morning uh, just this morning I, I saw a kingfisher uh on the river at the end of the park in the village this morning which um which i've never seen before uh and and i don't and i was talking to some some uh, uh, other friends in the park uh some much much older than me who who've never seen uh the kingfisher on the river so you know that oh, you know, thrilling oh absolutely and i and i stood there yeah. for ages waiting for this kingfisher to do another 
fly past, but um, it had obviously got better things to do. But, um, but you know, <laughs> I watched it fly up the one side of the bank and back down the other way, and uh, it was such an amazing flash of colour, and and it's so agile. Uh, it's just a thrilly thing. But you know, very often we we haven't had time to sort of plot that, and uh, and poems are a way of processing all that, and uh, and also you know what is happening to us and has been happening to us uh, through the pandemic, um, which is odd stuff, really odd stuff. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I know we're not alone, are we, at all in, in finding nature a way of just hanging on to something to, mm. to guide us through all of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm reading Monty Don's latest book, oh, yeah. which is called My Garden World. And um, I love his writing. Um, he feels like somebody who, who could easily have, have been a poet. Mm. There's, there's an enormous mm. amount of poetry I think to the way he describes the, the world around him and the, and, a, and a huge amount of looking he, I was reading a passage yesterday about the elm tree mm. and why they grow in the middle of fields and, and why we know their shape or used to know their shape so well because they weren't sort of surrounded by woodland right. and what we have made out of them over the years you know so much furniture so many houses but they, but they don't burn very well and yeah. I really feel as if as if I know elm so much better <laughs> than just, just read that page yeah, that's and it's fantastic it's wonderful yeah yeah well he's got a very um he's got a slow motor hasn't he uh monty don in the uh, in in the sense of you know he's there's a kind of calm and um in the way that he presents himself anyway which i i think is is quite therapeutic really. <laughs> to the rest of us agree. to the rest of us yeah <laughs> um I'm wondering, do you do you have any tips for for anyone listening to this who would like to flex their own poetry muscles at the moment? Uh, oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I uh, you know, apart from the exhortation to um, to do it, and uh, yeah, there are lots of um, little poetry competitions and and things, so that that can give you a little target. I. Um, I have a, fre- a poet friend, and much more accomplished than me, who who is always saying, "Have you tried writing a sestina yet?" Said, a sestina, what's that? What's that? <laughs> and, and there is a little part of me, you know. I mean, I didn't have a very, as I alluded to before, I didn't have a very sort of classy education. So if someone says sonnet to me, you know, uh, I'll immediately think, "What's a sonnet? What's a sonnet?" I'll have to look it up, you know. Um, <laughs> But uh, but that's a great. I, I found that really interesting uh, because because whilst you're sort of ta- tackling the the technical uh, side of it, right? Okay, it's got to be this many syllables and you know in, in yeah. the line and all that sort of thing. Um, I I found anyway that there's a there's a, another part of me that kind of you know just gets on with pouring itself out whilst I'm worrying about the technicality so it sort of takes away my self-consciousness in a way I guess my attention is on something so interesting and uh and out comes all sorts of stuff so uh, so I'd be doing that yeah so um so I'd recommend that as well you know find out what a gazelle is and um yeah and have have a go at writing uh, a couple and uh and see what comes out or a villanelle, maybe. Or a villanelle. Keep, keep them coming. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Um, it, it's interesting that I, I that resonates with me from the books that I'm writing. You know, based around the the Queen's daily life. Yes. Around, around dear Queen. Um, in that I I'm trying to fit my detective story around what she really did on specific days in 2016, yes. and uh, and often you know reality fights back because I want her to do a particular thing in my story, but actually she was somewhere else doing something else entirely. <laughs> and every time I find that 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 kind of that rigor that that scaffolding yes. that I have to sort of wrestle with is is helpful yes. and it and it throws up all sorts of opportunities that I hadn't realized yeah. were there um I mean there's a particular thing where I I I wanted her to be at home one evening and she just wasn't she went out that evening <laughs> and I, I thought oh, well, what was she wearing I'll just describe what she was wearing and she was wearing a pink suit but that didn't matter because what she was doing was going to a cooperation in Ireland meeting and I got to ruminate um quite a lot on how she felt about mm. that and yeah I it would it would never have happened if I wasn't sort of um, boxed in in a way yeah. by by this this scaffolding that I've given myself for no particular good reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, it's interesting how that it, it, you think it's going to shut you down, but actually it can free you up. Yeah, um, so thank you for that. And I, I've got one more poem I would love you to read for us, if you didn't mind, which is Naming the Field, particularly given that we've talked about the, the lovely view from your House. Oh right, yes, okay, yeah. This is so. This is this is yeah. This is very close to home, uh, literally, uh, geographically, and uh, and it led to a poem called "Naming the Field." We have a name for you now, you who stops our gardens fraying into wheat, who brings monk jacks and field rats and combines to call, who gathers fuel for snowmen. Catches all when our fireworks drift, whose green edge helps neighbours meet. You, who once returned five children adventuring beyond your brow, gone for hours, feared abducted, but at dusk brought safely home. You, whose sky is so wide and long and high, you have us gasping at air shows air balloons and the plough. You have clogged our boots, exhausted our dogs on stolen walks around your rim. You gave us walnuts from your hedgerow and once a bike. And even though you let in robbers, stealing over fences to raid our sheds, we look to you for comfort, space to breathe in. So why only now does your name rise from this old map? Do you sense with us, the planners, arm a line? We greet you, and would save you since you enchanted us. Ancient field, south of Foxhill, south of Middlefield. Help us help you, field 59. I really love that, even though I think it's going to be this beautiful bucolic story and then it gets more and more tense as it <laughs> Well, it's along. a little bit, yes. We, we are a little under threat at the moment from, from a guided or, as we all call it, the misguided busway uh, scheme 
which is uh, which is meant to cross actually not quite across this field, but it cuts across an adjoining one, and uh, and the danger of that. I mean, it's greenbelt uh, land, and the danger of that um, is is obviously it cuts it up into smaller and smaller parcels of land, which which are then more easily picked off uh, yes. by developers. Um, obviously, people need places to live, but actually, usually the schemes aren't about affordable housing anyway but uh but also you know once this is gone it is gone and it has been there uh for thousands of years um and uh that's a very precious thing um yes yeah so um so yes it Protest is slightly poetry. I love I love Fox Hills and Middlefield and just just that sense of that a community would have of, of the these names that we just throw around and know exactly what you meant. Um, yeah, and they, you know, when you look back on the old maps, as I did, you know, I because I, I figure once a thing has a name, it's it's harder to just sweep it away. That's my theory, and uh, so I did go to the local library, sort of planning. Uh, section local history section and summon up the maps from the bowels of whatever storage space they have and uh, and you can see those names you know they have been there for for centuries um, and this this eventually you you discover uh, in a map from the I think it was the end of the 18th century early 19th century um, you find the name it's it is field 59 you know that's as much of a name as it's got <laughs> but um and but it's got a name and now it's got a poem it's lovely yeah. thank you for that um i you mentioned earlier the the play that that you have been working oh, on yeah. for a really long time mm. uh and it was all just coming to fruition and 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 we did this training course together last year yeah. and I remember you talking about it and how exciting it was and it was due to go to St Petersburg wasn't that's it that's right and and then this has all happened so how has the pandemic affected this work well and what is it well it it it, it has put everything on hold really I mean that's that's the way of it I mean it was it was meant to um to we we premiered it in Russia at the birthplace of the writer uh, of the story on which the play is based. That was a complicated sentence. I was glad to, <laughs> I was glad to get out. Of. Um, <laughs> so it's a play called Bliss, which I yes, should have said. That's that's right. That's right. And it's based yes. on a short story by a, a, a rather wonderful, uh, I think, Russian. Uh, short uh, story writer called Andrei Platonov, and um, and and Platonov made the cardinal mistake of uh, of flowering uh, as an author at the same time as Stalin uh, flowered as a uh, ruler, and uh, and, oh and Stalin wrote scum on the back of one of Platonov's stories because. Because Platonov, interestingly, he was he was a real believer in the revolution. He he really believed that great change needed to come, but he was he was way too clear sighted about the the political uh, hierarchy and the um, all the political infighting uh, that was going on. And and Platonov's great subject, I think, is is the lives of ordinary people 
and and his subject really is is the fallout of revolution, uh, the impact of it, uh, and and particularly of the neglect of the political classes, uh, of the working class. Um, so um, so yeah, so he had a short and rather unpleasant life, really. Um, but uh, but wrote these these amazing uh, things uh, stories and and one of them, which is called the River Potudan, became the basis for my play Bliss. And it it, it works, you know. In the end, like like most good things, on one level, it is just about a, a damage a couple of damaged people trying to make a life together um, after. Uh, the civil war in Russia, um, and and at the start of the play, they sort of think they've survived all the hard bit, uh, yeah. And by the end of the play, they kind of have. They're they're at a place where they can perhaps start to build a life, but in the meantime, you know, there's a lot of uh, reckoning to do, really, because as I say, they're both both very damaged people. But uh, but it was supposed to have a run. It's supposed to go back to uh, Russia to St Petersburg, as you said, and then to have a three week run at the Fimbra Theatre. Um, when so so we are sort of nominally penciled in for spring of next year, uh, or as okay. or as soon as any of us feel able. And have the appetite for sitting in a sweaty little uh, pub theatre with fifty other people and, uh, yes. and some actors <laughs> sweating away. So uh, yeah, who knows? Um, I mean, as a, as an avid theatre goer, there is a deep part of me that simply can't wait for all of that. Yes. But there is another part of me that that can absolutely wait until we all feel safe again. It's yeah. it's hard. It yes. is I keep hard. on getting these anguished emails from, you know, all the theatre companies I normally support mm-hmm. saying, you know, well, when do you feel like coming back? And and I want to say, oh, tomorrow, but it's actually like, nope, I'm not right now. Just can't. It's so tough for everybody. You must know lots of people who who are really um, struggling to to keep their their lives. Yes, together. well, and of course, you know, I mean, it's it's traditional for actors who are resting to um, to wait on tables and work in bars. You know, uh, oh, I mean, God, or, yes. or be self-employed in you know some other way, maybe as physical uh, physical trainers, or you know, they they often have something to fall back on because because actors are incredibly resilient and resourceful people but but an awful lot of those plan b's are are also closed down at the moment so um i haven't thought of that so yes it is exactly very very difficult um so we will you know we will revive the production uh, just as as soon as we can and in some ways the subject matter is incredibly apposite you know how do you how do you how do you build uh, a good society when when you're starting from uh, very sort of damaged and and traumatized people? Um, which I, I think I was we all thinking that as you described I it. I was thinking, yeah, that sounds yeah. Quite, well, quite, you know, we we are all traumatized in different ways, you know. And I yeah, and I yeah, think like yeah. you sort of. Uh, intimated there a little that you know we are becoming despite this is why getting outside and, and connecting with nature is so important because we are 
because I speak for myself, you know, I am becoming conditioned to um, to meet people through a screen. And there is a little bit part of me that, that is feels more happy with that, certainly, <laughs> than being in a crowd. I know at the what moment. you mean. Um, yeah, I'd, I had a book club meeting um, just before lockdown. It was utterly under the rules. You know, it was, it was outdoors mm, at night mm, in the freezing cold. Mm, we all had our hats and gloves yeah. on. Uh, and we're, we're women who know each other really well. And we've known each other for years. But it was odd to talk to each yes. other because we hadn't spoken to anyone right. outside our immediate families for such a long yeah. time. It took us a while to warm up again. Yes. Well, I, I, I've been keeping a... I, I teach an evening class, a creative writing evening class in a college nearby and we we've kept going as a face-to-face thing me with a visor and them with masks and with the windows wide open and the door open and washing all the tables down before and after and everything else and just this week uh we've we've sort of finally given in really and gone um gone on to uh zoom other platforms are available Mm. and uh and actually, it was uh, it was a I would say a much more relaxed um, occasion than it has been for the last few weeks. I think uh, <laughs> you know we it, it, I mean we we are so lucky really that we have these other ways of, of communicating. I, both my boys are away from home at the moment, abroad. One's in Amsterdam. One's in a small hill town in Spain, and uh, yes. you know we're able to to communicate online you know we can we can sit and have a a face-to-face chat um and that's you know i'm very very grateful for that Uh, i don't know how we yeah we are we are hugely lucky to have that i know i've I've just finished a book called contacts by mark watson the comedian who is also a novelist um and and it's a book about uh, a man called Jamie who, who starts off the book as suicidal and, and he sends a note to everyone in his contacts list saying, you know, thank you very much and goodbye. And then it's about how they all try and reach out to him, but they don't know where he is. Um, and it, it, it's a plea, really, to everybody to to use the technology that we have um, in positive ways to, to reach out and hold on to each other. And, yes. and I think that's a really good message to be giving to people yeah. at the moment. Yeah. I, I, I read recently a book, I don't know whether you've come across, uh, it's quite an old book, Asimov's, um, uh, what, what is the title, is called uh, the, the, uh, the Naked Sun, is that what it's called? Uh, yes, The Naked Sun. Um, yeah. And that is a real cautionary tale about becoming... Uh, becoming conditioned to not meeting other people physically, and uh, oh, okay, it's, it's, it's the most extraordinary thing. I mean, it's 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 science fiction that is that rings incredibly true. Uh, these these people are, you know, all live very isolated lives, and uh, and are sort of terrified of personal contact, um, and it is because of a because of fears of disease um yeah it's, it's an extraordinary okay, right. book. extraordinary <laughs> it's on my list <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned that you've been teaching and and that's how we met because we were both um, fellows of the Royal Literary Fund. So mm-hmm. um, teaching in universities, teaching students who for whatever academic writing support they needed. And then then we did this extra course on um, uh, being becoming consultant for those who mm. teach sort of further education. Um, and. 
And I was really fascinated that um, there was an exercise. We all had to make up an exercise. And, and there was one you did where you, you put together. It was really beautiful, but you had a model of a of a theatre effectively. And and you you had sort of the the, the performer and, and the audience that you gradually brought in. Um, it was it was a really sort of physical thing mm. uh, with the rest of us all writing on whiteboards. Um <laughs> And and we're moving towards sort of the idea that that they really had to think of the the listener, the receiver mm. in their work, mm. um, and it really it really fascinated me. I, I thought, yes, that's so true. We we need to do that, and it's and it seems so obvious, and yet it is so easy to forget that when you're writing, mm. whether it be a novel or a poem mm. or an essay, I guess. And I'm interested to know how much. Um, how much you bring your understanding of performance into your writing and and your teaching does it does it really help you understand that dynamic better do you think yeah yes i think it does i mean i mean one thing i've i've done recently is i i've started co-directing a, a course at uh, cambridge university which is which is actually writing for performance um it's a master's course and uh and that is giving me the opportunity to to think an awful lot about that, about about how dialogue um, is written in such a way that it kind of invites the audience to to um, be involved in the sort of decoding. You know, we we encode stuff in yes. dialogue, and the audience decodes it. Um, yes, and uh, and. And and if an audience is decoding, then they're working, and if they're working, then they're engaged. So, so that way of of writing, expecting, um, assuming that there is an audience there, um, interpreting what we're doing, and, and locating um, little bits of information, and working out the pattern, and how is this bit connected with that bit. I, I think it does alter inevitably the way that that you write because you you are not thinking of yourself as the sort of you know you're not <laughs> to, <laughs> to quote uh, Princess Di, which of course I do all the time. It's it's talking to I'm you sure that's you made made me think of that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not just the writer and actor that are in this marriage. You know, there's an audience as well. Um, yeah, and, uh, that that is so interesting because I I've, I've often done workshops on on dialogue and that is my favourite part. That dialogue can be very dull when somebody says something and the other person listens to them and responds appropriately, <laughs> and that happens over and over. And yes. and don't do that. Yes, <laughs> so yes, yes. it's much more fun very when somebody cool. says something and the other person isn't listening, doesn't understand, yeah. doesn't get the 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 hidden meaning, or you know that's much more exciting. Yeah. Um, and I always say, if you want to hear examples of this, just listen to any episode of The Archers on Radio 4, <laughs> because there's always at least one scene where they do that. <laughs> I sort of feel like it must be an Archers in joke, yes. um, where one of the, the characters has a terrible secret and, you know, their, their cousin or neighbour yes. just does not get it. Yeah. And and it does because it as the as the listener it does or reader it completely pulls you in because you're arguing you're saying listen you stupid person can't you hear what Absolutely. this person is doing and then suddenly as you say you are the third person in the marriage yeah and I I, I think the you know the mistake is to think of well as you say the mistake is to think of dialogue as as two people communicating and actually the near misses are um, are often much more powerful and interesting. 
um, than than successful communication. Uh, whether that's, oh, that's whether that's because you have a problem expressing yourself, or the other person has a problem hearing for whatever reason, whether it's just distraction or uh, or, or whatever it is, um, the misses are, are as interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd I'd love to do this course. It sounds absolutely because <laughs> yeah, um, you've you've co-written um, the book playwriting with Claire Bailey. Haven't yes. You? So you are you are an expert. Stuff, <laughs> no, I'm not sure about that, but it was it was great. Uh, it was great working with Claire on the book, and uh, and again, just that. I mean, the thing is, in the end, you know, theory comes comes out of practice. Really, you know. Um, if if you are a writer then you write and then you you know if you're lucky you get the opportunity to think well you know why why do i do it like that uh and why do other people do it like that or how do people get that effect so you you start to sort of um examine uh, uh why things work in the way that they work and um and yes yeah. That is um, that is a real privilege to be able to do that, but I do find it endlessly interesting. You know, I'm very curious about um, about uh, different forms of writing, and and uh, inevitably you and then and of course you know teaching itself is is fun. I, I like trying to think of ways of and and this has been again this has been another challenge because all our teaching. We were gearing up to do this new course, and then suddenly, right, it's all going to be online. Uh, it's all going to be remote teaching and learning. So, so suddenly, a lot of my workshop things that I would normally do, let's pass this around the group. Uh, yes, <laughs> you, you yes. know that's straight away something you can't do. Okay, so so how can you know what can we come up with uh, that will enable us to have. Um, a, a, a genuine kind of as they say learning experience uh, so that's you know I love all that stuff I love coming up with sort of writing exercises and things I um, my, my creative writing class last night I'd given them I found what I thought was probably the most banal bit of prose I've ever read in a book and uh, and, and uh, their homework uh, from last week was to to try and make um, dialogue out of it, it was it was very funny. Uh, actually, all the pieces were very funny. I think because it was so so intractable. Um, uh, but that was a lot of fun. I love coming up with things like that. Oh, brilliant! I'm stealing that one yeah, yeah, <laughs> straight away. It sounds away. excellent. <laughs> you um you did a, a piece for the Royal Literary Fund um called the Writing Hour. Uh, on their Vox strand, didn't you? Where you you talked about your your own kind of writing practice, um, and I wondered whether you could describe that a little bit, and 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 whether you're whether you're using it at the moment to help you through. Well, it, it, yes, I mean that really came about be, because of that. I I'd got into a kind of mindset as I think a lot of us do because we we've got you know lots of things we've got to juggle domestic responsibilities and, and other kinds of work um uh teaching whatever uh and uh and it, it it's obviously very easy for your own writing time to be to completely disappear because because it's the thing that has the least 
deadline attached to it, the least financial impact you know actually whether i write if i write a poem this morning or if i don't actually makes no difference to the family bank balance so you know it's very easy for that to get squashed out completely and and i realized what happened was i realized that i had got into a sort of what I would call a clear clear the decks kind of mindset, you know, right, I'll do this and then I'll do that and then I'll do that and then I'll have some writing time, you know. And, of course, what happens is you you spend your whole day sort of striving to get through this stuff and you never kind of, or frequently, you never get to that time. Or if you do, you're so exhausted, you know, it's it's just easier to make a cup of tea and sit down for five minutes. So so, um, I, I... thought I've got to do something really radical here so I'm 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 going to turn it on its head and and the first thing I do in the day will be some writing time and I I called it the writing hour and I caught I opened a word file and, and made a little sort of journal thing so I would begin each day would begin just by you know talking about writing and then often it would spill into writing and it would be an hour and and if I couldn't uh, do any more than that well that was it you know but but then you go on to the rest of the day feeling certainly this is how it affected me I felt like I got something in the bank Um, I got a bit of writing and that and and because writing goes to the heart of who you sort of feel you are, if you're not writing, you know, as I often said jokingly, you know, I'm I'm, I'm no longer a playwright; I'm a play wrote because I haven't <laughs> I haven't managed to pick up a pen in anger in weeks. Um, uh, so it goes to the heart of, of how you feel about yourself, you know, and and it really does. Uh, That's so true. So it's 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 a way of staking that time out and i and i do know that you know people in 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 lots of different uh you know people who have been doing phds whilst juggling three children or whatever you know have yeah. have found that useful that and and it is amazing how much work you can get done in a focused hour um and uh, and as i say it makes it makes a world of difference to the way you feel about yourself uh, and about your writing and and next morning you get up and think oh good you know I can do a bit of writing so even if it I mean I came up with all sorts of variations so there was the scant hour which <laughs> which is when you <laughs> literally cannot you know because you literally have to go and collect your kids or take them to school or whatever it is uh so you know there were there were sort of variants but um but nominally it was an hour and you can even set a timer, you know, and then write, fine, that's it. I don't look at that again all day. I do the other stuff. But I've got it in the back. That that is so brilliant. Um I usually end with asking somebody what their best writing tip would be, but I'm I'm not gonna ask you because I'm yeah. gonna, <laughs> I want yeah, to end on that one. It. That's just yeah. so brilliant, Fraser. Thank you very much. That's it. Um it's been really lovely talking to yeah, you. It's been a great um, pleasure. And uh yeah, I feel energised myself to go off and get a bit of practical writing done. I, I, it's so true. I've I've had to do various, I say I've had to do, I've chosen to yeah. do various other things recently and not enough writing. Mm. 
And a couple of days ago, I I managed to to do some plotting. At least there was that, and I, I did feel differently about myself yeah. afterwards. I thought, yes, this is this is what I'm for. Yes. This is what I do. Yes. Finally, uh, it's back, and it, it's an important yeah, just for our mental well. Yeah, you've got to look that. after your spirit. I think, especially yeah, in these times. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that was lovely. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast, and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>